Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand sparkling new episode of the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Father Peter Musset. <laughs> After you. And my name is Dr. Scott Powell. And uh, we're excited that you're joining us on this beautiful end of August uh, podcast. And we're excited to be back together to join you because it's been a while since we've been together for this podcast. I mean, it's been so long, in fact, that this is the 16th time we've tried to record this introduction. It's something like that. It's been it's been a little <laughs> bit absurd. And every, every time I end well, up laughing. The podcast kind of went on a little bit of a vacation. And so it's always hard to kind of enter back in to work once you're on vacation, right? I know. And so the podcast is struggling today. You it's, wouldn't know. I, Hopefully you guys not, don't know it's that. It's not struggling, dude. I'm on fire, man. For better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> for uh, richer or for poorer. Yes, yes. We're also a little loopy because all the students are arriving in Boulder. So Boulder just got crazy in the last couple of days. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I mean, 20,000 of our best friends just showed back up. Literally, I forget what traffic was. Oh, because summer in Boulder is the best. You're just driving around. You're living around. the sweet life. You're relaxed every once in a while. Like, you have to stop for a stoplight. It's fine. And mm-hmm. now and now it's like, like get out of my way, my SUV. Yeah. Is that what you say? No, I don't have an <laughs> SUV. You kind of do. A Jeep is not an SUV. What is it? It is a utility vehicle without no all the support. support. No <laughs> <laughs> it's a SUV. Oh, say what you will. Okay, you're right. It has a lot of and sport yours, in it. Your particular Jeep is bigger than most SUVs. It is. It, it, Let's it's, be honest. It's It's gone into like an apocalyptic vehicle. Which would be really handy to have in case of the apocalypse. So keep it gassed up just in case. You got it. And I'll be here. Well, we're really excited because- How excited? Um, woo <laughs> That is really excited. Woo-hoo! Sorry, what are, what are we excited for? The train coming? <laughs> what are we excited for? Um, I genuinely did, don't know. Did, um, we're getting to see all of the new students. Oh, yes. Um, all the old students. I'm getting to meet some of the parents. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, we've met some of you. Pete Buchanan. Because some of, some of you have kids going to see you, which Absolutely. is really exciting to meet you guys. Pete, thanks for the beer. Pete. A whole gift basket. Thank you. Of of all sorts of San Diego beer, man. Oh. Life is good. San Diego is good. We are in the 21st Sunday of the time of ordinals. Yeah. Yeah. The numbered time. The numbered time. This is the 21st numbered time. Mm. Also the Feast of St. Monica, which is actually really interesting. Is it really? Yeah. Be- I didn't realize. Yeah. She is a great patron for the beginning of the school year here at CU. Because- There are a lot of St. Monica's out there who, I think, praying for their little ones. Yeah, who have the like deepest desires that they would follow after the faith. And yeah. like that's where the complementarity of vocation comes in. Yeah. Where like wow. where you have left off, we take it up. And so we Ooh. just invite you to join Monica and just pray for your kids. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. That's good to know. Okay, well, that's fitting. Well, you can mention that on Sunday. I'm going to. Well, yeah, as you should. We do a big, uh, we call it the Mass on the Grass. We do a big Mass smack dab in the center of CU's campus on Farron Field. Um, and we, you have all the big speakers so that everyone who is away from home for the first time, who is not going to Mass on Sunday, can hear it in their dorm rooms and feel all of the guilt of Mass coming to them. So it's really good. Feel them. Dude, I always thought if I had one of those dorms on the grounds, what I would do is I would go to mass in my room and then I would run out of my dorm to go get communion. Can you do that? There's got to be a proximity issue. I mean, what if you can hear it? Aren't you there? I don't know. You're the 
you're the pastor. I mean, I would say that it's legit. Boom. Going to get the mass in everybody's ears, everybody's right. faces. Well, speaking of that, it's uh, first reading is from okay. Isaiah 22, 19 to 23. Way to jump right in. Our responsorial psalm is Psalm 138, verses 1 through 2, 2 through 3, 6, and 8. And the response itself is from 8 B and C, or BC. BC, before Christianity. 8 BC. Hmm. The response is from before Christianity. Yeah. Before. Scott, the response is before well, it's true. That's actually true. I know. Okay, I, get I just it. need you to acknowledge me. I do. I acknowledge. I I affirm you. I don't affirm you your being. forget about me. I don't. don't I won't. Don't, don't, don't. Our, our second, second reading, reading is from Romans, <laughs> chapter eleven, thirty-three to thirty-six. All right, and our gospel is coming from Matthew sixteen, verses thirteen through twenty. You know how some weeks I say. Um, how frustrated I am that if I were putting together the readings, I would put these super obvious things right, together. Right. This is one of those Sundays where the super obvious thing actually does fit together. And I the know. one that I would have put as the gospel actually shows up. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, I was I was looking and I I mean there's lots of keys and gates and all by eats. Are there gates? Yeah. Doors. Yeah. Doors and gates. Doors and, and gates and keys, man. Doors and gates and keys. That's the, it. Can be the title. Doors of the and gates and keys. Dude, oh my! It reminds me of a quote from from um, Ghostbusters. Cats and dogs living together. I am the gatekeeper. Are you the key master? I do remember that. And if somebody asks you if you're a god, you say yes. yes. <laughs> Rick Moranis was brilliant in that movie, if I may say so myself. Hey, thank you. Was that Rick Moranis? It was. All right. Well, anyway, <laughs> um, okay. So, okay. I, dude, I tried to read the context of uh, context of Isaiah, and I just you're not going to get it. I mean, well, no, you can get it. I because well, I'm it looking Elikim of Hilkiah, Eliakim. Uh, yeah, not to split hairs, but it is Eliakim of Hilkiah, son of Hilkiah. Eliakim of son of Hilkiah. What do you think the context is? Dude, I could not get it. I okay. was tr- I was trying to understand, and that's it, why there's I, a very specific context here. Yeah, I was reading around, and I was like, I'm con- I'm confused. Isaiah is not super clear about it. Um, I I believe the parallel is either in Second Kings or in Second Chronicles. It might actually be both. So you actually have to put, you know, there's so much of the. But this is the thing. The whole nature of the Bible. The Bible is not meant to be read, you know, page one to page to the end. You know, it's it's not linear. No. It actually is circular, secular at times, and so. The same event that happens in Isaiah is retold in a different way in Second Kings. It's retold in a different way than that in Second Chronicles. And sometimes the, the scriptures just repeat each other. I mean, think of the Gospels. All four of the Gospels are telling the exact same story, the life, death, passion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from four different points of view, right? Right. So the, the Bible loves to do that. So what that means is you, it's like a big jigsaw puzzle. And you have to find all of the pieces to put together to get the whole picture, right? So elsewhere, if you look up what's going on here. So uh, Shebna, who is the master of the palace. Shebna, by the way, okay, uh, let me cut to the chase on something here. Because I think it's going to make all the rest of the readings make more sense. I just want to get, I'm not holding back the punchline or anything, but... But we do kind of want to cut to the chase. I, and a lot of you are familiar with this. Some of you guys know apologetics and have done Bible studies and stuff. The gospel reading is the very famous passage about Jesus giving the keys to the kingdom to Peter, right? Matthew 16. Matthew 16. That, that we use that as a shorthand. Yeah, it's when Peter essentially becomes Pope. Right? right. And if you're following along the whole narrative of the gospels, that is really the pinnacle moment that Jesus 
begins to uh, unveil who he is and actually head toward his death. Up until that point in the Gospels, Jesus kind of veils his identity right? because Jesus didn't simply come to die on the cross. He came to establish a church and then die on her behalf. So this is the moment that he really establishes his church. Um, he, he puts Peter, he gives, uh, Peter's position is what's called the al-bayit, um, right. which is a term that we get, we get, it's a Hebrew term from the Old Testament. It means the one who is over the house. And so in every kingdom, and essentially it's the prime minister. This is essentially the position that um, Moses, no, not Moses, that uh, Joseph, I'm sorry, Old Testament Joseph would have had in Egypt, right? Remember when he sold off to slavery yeah, and he goes yeah. to Potiphar's house? He essentially becomes the Al-Bayit, right? So it's the, it's the prime minister. It's the one who rules and kind of the people look to in the physical absence of the king. And how that is shown is the one who has the keys to the kingdom. So that being said, our first reading... Um, and and the, are those keys metaphorical or physical? I think they're physical. I think there's actually a set of keys that they held. Mm-hmm. So they're they're the Joe Corrigan of the of the <laughs> ancient world. Absolutely. Who is one of the most important per- people at this parish? Because you need something done, you need access to something. You go to jail, right? Right. Which is just kind of the thing. There, there's something kind of beautiful actually about that imagery. But yeah, I, th- I think there was probably actual keys. I assume. But anyway, at this point in the story, so Isaiah 22. What's happening? This is during the reign of a king in Jerusalem called Hezekiah, who I think we've talked about before. Do you remember Hezekiah? He, he I has a Kaya to make mention of uh, what I think he is. Uh, hesitate, Hezekiah. Uh, oh, that was that I was see. such a no, stretch. It was, it was bad. It was good. You slurred it a little bit, so I couldn't quite hear the hesitate. It, 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 oh, you hesitated. I hesitated on ah. Hezekiah. Hezekiah didn't. Doesn't he still stare at his belly button or something? <laughs> no, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> is that a is that a pun too? Did no, no, no. I, I just am, I I don't know who Hezekiah. Hezekiah is good. So in um you know throughout the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, there's very few good kings. If you remember, it's just this litany of terrible kings, both in the Northern Kingdom and in the Southern Kingdom in Jerusalem. Right. Except for uh, off the top of my head, I can only think of two good kings in that period down in Jerusalem, and they're Hezekiah, and then a guy named Josiah. You remember Josiah later on was the one who would uh, stage all of those reforms. He discovers the book of Deuteronomy. He's like, oh, shoot, we haven't been doing any of this stuff. He renovates yeah. the temple, all this stuff. Hezekiah is similar. He um, he is reigning during the time that the nation of Assyria, remember? Assyria has just wiped out the northern kingdom. So Got the it. 10 northern tribes of Israel, they've been obliterated. And now Assyria has set its sights on the southern kingdom, down oh. in Jerusalem. And so they're headed to town. And Every other king in Israel's history, aside from a small handful, when there's danger or threat on the horizon, every one of them turn to other military alliances or other powers or a foreign, you know, a safeguard or some, some political or economic or military strategy. When, in fact, what the kings are supposed to do is only turn to God for their Got salvation. It. Got it. Hezekiah does that. He's one of the only kings that actually says, God, you need to be our king. You are our safeguard. We need you to help us, right? Wow. And so he ends up, and, and he makes some bad decisions along the way. But what he's really known for is when, it, and, and one of the, my favorite things about Hezekiah, um, and he has a story later on in Isaiah, he literally embodies the fate of his people. So there's the story as the Assyrians are kind of battering down the walls and things are getting worse and worse. He actually grows very ill. He gets sick. And the worse the battle gets and the more that the Assyrians destroy of the Holy Land, the sicker and more ill he gets, close to death, right? And then there's a miraculous intervention. God intercedes. Assyria pulls back out. 
And guess what happens to Hezekiah? He's miraculously healed. He gets better. He gets well. So he literally lives out in his body what's happening in Israel, which is what the king is supposed to do. The king embodies Bodies his the people. people. Right? Yeah, literally. So that's kind of why Hezekiah is famous and well-known in the Bible. So that, that's the big context. Now, specifically where this comes in. So during Hezekiah's reign, a guy named Shebna is his uh, albait. It's his prime minister, right? An important guy in the kingdom, right? And where we pick it up in Isaiah, you have the Lord saying to Shebna, who was the prime minister, the master of the palace, I'm going to thrust you out of your office. I'm going to pull you down from your station. I'm going to rip you out of your position, seemingly as punishment. I mean, that's the implication. And instead, I'm going to put this guy named Eliakim, who was another big wig in the kingdom, in your place. I'm going to clothe him with your robe, give him your sash, give him your authority, and he's going to be the one who holds the keys now to the house of David. Okay. So the question is, okay, why does Shebna lose his position as the holder of the keys? It's actually a very interesting story. And I, I think that there's, I have an interesting kind of ideas of connections here. So I, I think it's happens? partly because his name is stupid. He has a dumb name. All the Shebnas who are listening. Are yeah. like, what? <laughs> How dare you, Father Peter? Do not talk about my name like this. Shebna. I am Shebna of Albany. Um, <laughs> anyway, Shebna. Think about the context I just I just talked about. So things are getting really bad. Assyria is is preparing to tear down Jerusalem. They're going to do to the south what they did to the north. Everyone is terrified. And here's Hezekiah, the king, saying, no, we have to trust in God. God will protect us. We must put our trust in him. He has promised to save us. We must trust in him, right? Yeah. Which is what you want a king doing. Yes. Well, what does Shebna go and do? The Albait, the second hand, the right hand man, right? The keys of the kingdom. He goes out and he's like, yes, absolutely. I'm behind you, Hezekiah. And he goes out and he buys a really beautiful, really expensive tomb for himself. The best grave site in the graveyard. That's a because really weird kind of purchase. Well, I, what do you think he's thinking as he's like, Oh, Assyria is coming to destroy and kill all of us. Oh, the King's telling us we're going to trust in God. God will save us. God right. will protect us. But you know what? I'm going to go buy the nice grave site because I don't think that's going to happen. So he basically it's does fundamental this, despair. It's a, exactly. He's yeah. like, no, God ain't saving us. I'm right. going to go and buy a tomb. That's his response to his King saying, God will protect us. I'm going to go buy a grave. Yeah, then I would kick him out, too. Yeah, that's what happens, though. And it's not as evident in Isaiah. Isaiah does reference the tomb. You might have re realized that when you yeah. were reading around, but you're like, what does that mean? Right. I think it's in Second Chronicles. But for that reason, because he's publicly shown, like, you're not actually doing what you're supposed to do. You're not the face of the kingdom, which is supposed to be God's representation on earth. You're doing the opposite. So because of that, God rips him down and puts Eliakim in his place. Um, okay. So that's the context. That's what's going on here. And again, the reason that this is significant in terms of the gospel, where Peter gets the keys, this is the most clear, most explicit reference in the Old Testament to the prime minister or the albayit, who, who is also, by the way, called the father of the household, called the papa. Pope is where we get that term. But someone being given the keys to the kingdom and having this place in the kingdom and the divine um, household, right? And that's why the scriptures tie it to this with Peter. Because Peter is the keeper of the keys. Yeah, I mean, because we know these concepts. I mean, we see yep. this in the House of David. We see the Queen Mother. We see the Albayi. We see the actual pattern of the church, even experienced within David's king, David's um, kingdom already. Yeah, yeah, which is great. Which okay, so here, so this is a great little piece of apologetics, right? A, a nice little clean. 
here's why the church believes what it does. There's Old Testament precedent. The reason we believe in a pope is because there's precedent in the Old Testament for a person in the kingdom who holds these roles. They're called the papa, you know, all these things. Like, really great, wonderful apologetic. We're, we feel really good about ourselves. But I think there's something much, much deeper for those of us that are familiar with that to, to actually reflect on because there's more to it than that. So that's the, the backdrop. Yep. Um, can we jump really quick to the gospel and then put the other two in the context? Yeah, man. I'm always up for some sort of adventurous kind of misalignment of the scriptures. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um, okay, you, so that's you, the backdrop. You, you never do this. I know. I, this is new. But it, I, I, it makes I, me feel confused. I want to say something about the psalm. The psalm in particular. Well, Romans 2, in light of that. Because if, in my mind, you can't separate, at least what the liturgy is doing, you can't separate the, the reading from Isaiah from the reading from Matthew. Okay. Those are the ones that are part and parcel tied oh, together. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the keys, I mean, it's such a direct reference for each other. Until you read the psalms and Romans, and then you're like, oh, that's a whole different light to them dude that I'm i didn't excited see before. what you got going to do and i don't know if it's gonna work this is one of those things that's floating around in my mind so we'll see what happens once it comes out of my mouth hole um so matthew 16 okay little story to tell you about this and i feel like i may have told this story on the podcast before so jesus takes them out to the region called caesarea philippi which if you were to look at caesarea philippi on a map it's not on the way to anything they're no, they're slowly headed toward jerusalem from the Galilee region, but they go way out of the way to go to Caesarea Philippi, which yeah, is one of the headwaters, one of the, the that's true. headwaters of the River Jordan. Of the Jordan. Have you been there? Did you go out to Caesarea Philippi? I did go to Caesarea okay. Philippi. So and, good. Maybe this will be. And to this day, it's still in the middle of nowhere. It's still in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's really unpopulated. There's literally nothing there except what? Do you know the, the one thing that's there that's noteworthy? The old temple. Yep. Okay, so we'll get there in a second. Which is, which we should note that Caesarea Philippi, the name, is not an, is is really the name. No, it's literally Caesar's Philippi. Actually, Philip of Macedon, I think, one of the Greek, uh, Philip the Great, right? I think is the namesake of Philippi back when it was a Greek empire. I think he's where the name came from. And then under the Roman occupation, under the Roman Empire, it became Caesar's Philippi. Uh, but for a very specific reason. Do you know this story? No. Okay. So here's the story. Go back a few years prior to Jesus, right? When the Greek Empire is about to give way to the Roman Empire. And basically, I, I think I have my history read on this. You basically have the last stand between, I think it was Julius Caesar and um, Mark Anthony, right? Mark Anthony, who was kind of the last stand of the Greek Empire, and then Julius Caesar, who was trying to create it into a, a Roman Empire, right? The transition moment. And throughout the empire, uh, people were kind of taking sides. It was like a political election, right? We just had this super contentious election, you know, a couple months ago here. And it was kind of like that. So everyone was sort of taking sides who they thought was going to control the empire. And some were like, I'm putting my effort behind the Greeks. There, It's going to be the Greek Empire. And some were like, no, no, no. This Caesar, like, he's, he's got it going on. It's going to yeah. be Rome. Yeah. Who's going to win, right? Well, in Jerusalem, uh, Herod, there's been a series of Herods, but the Herod of the day, <laughs> guess what? He put his money on the wrong horse, and he put his money behind oh, the Greeks, and he's yeah. like, no, I think it's going to be Mark Anthony, <laughs> and of course, it's not, and he fails, right? So um, fast forward a little bit. Caesar uh, Augustus. So Julius Caesar was the one, I, th I think, uh, again, if I have my history right, he was the one that really made the Roman Empire the Roman Empire. Okay. But his son, his adopted son, Caesar, uh, uh, Octavian, so Caesar Augustus, who a lot of us are familiar with, later on um, was very, very power hungry. And one of the things he did early on in his reign, he stood before the Roman Senate one day and he said, look, 
a lot of the the ancient mythology, you know, one thing the Greeks were really good at was their mythologies and all of their gods and goddesses and this whole worldview that they created. But nobody really cares about the Roman gods and goddesses. Like they're they're out there, but nobody really pays attention because the Roman Senate, the Roman government, they were realists, right? They didn't really care about mythologies. They cared about politics and they cared about building roads and aqueducts and all that stuff, right? So he's like, I don't think that's right. So he stood before the Roman Senate and he said, you know what I think we should do? I think my father, Julius Caesar, was so great and so profound and did so much for the world. I say, I propose that the Roman Senate votes to declare my father, Julius Caesar, a god. He should be recognized as a deity because of all he did, right? Absolutely. So the Roman Senate, they're like, well, this is dumb. We don't care about any of this stuff. We want to move on to building roads and political stuff. We want to get away from this conversation. So if we say no to him, he's probably going to cut our heads off and, and accuse us of treason, right? Because that's you don't want to say no to Caesar Augustus. If we say yes... Nobody really cares about these Roman gods anyway. It doesn't really do any damage. Fine. We'll give him a little plaque, right? You know, here you go. You can get a t-shirt. It says, my dad was a god. Fine. We'll declare Julius Caesar a god. So they do that. And it's not very long before then Caesar Augustus stands up before the Roman Senate and says, thank you very much. I'd like you all to bow down before me because I am now son of God. And they're like, oh, shoot. (laughs) So he deifies himself and he declares himself the son of God and all around his empire. He demands that temples be built to his father, Julius Caesar and the son of God, the great Caesar Augustus Octavian. So back to Herod, remember who put his money behind the wrong horse a few years back. He's like, well, shoot, what do I do? I got to build a temple to show the Romans that we really are behind them, that I want them to, you know, take care of us and not get mad at us. But if I build a temple to Caesar in the middle of Jerusalem, I mean, the political situation in Jerusalem is already pretty tense. People are going to go crazy and riot. So he looked at his map. He's like, where in my little region could I put a temple to Caesar that nobody would really notice it very much? Right. I'll put it over there. Well, this is the thing is that there was a pre-existing temple on the site. Exactly. That was uh, for some sort of uh, agri- uh, agri- One uh, of the Greek gods, yeah. Yeah, it was for an agrarian god. So it was like for- I forget good, who it was. Good crops. Yeah. But, yeah. but they would, at some time, there was actually live, uh, there was human sacrifice there. Uh, yeah, in, in days past, yeah. Yeah. So that's where Jesus takes his disciples. And what's the significant thing about that temple that you remember? Human sacrifice? The gate of- uh, the, there was Physically, there was, physic- geographically there, speaking. There was a gigantic pit in it. Uh, I didn't know that. Big there's wall. Something... There's a gigantic wall and a big pit. Where did they build it, though? In the side of a wall. The side of a huge rock face. Yeah, yeah. Right? A, a mean, big a, rock wall. That's yeah. what I mean, a yeah. cliff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So Jesus chooses to go there with his disciples as he's about to open everything up and head toward the cross. And he says, he gives the first public opinion poll, right? And he's like, who do you say that I am? Or who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, 30% think you're Elijah and 25% think you're John the Baptist and 28% undecided. <laughs> and he's like, fine. Who do you say that I am? Right. And you remember what Peter says? He says that you're really cool. No. He He says, says, I've come to believe that you are the son of God. No, that's not what he says. Not in Matthew. What does he say in Matthew? He says, you are the Christ. Remember, what does Christ mean? Uh, uh, The king. Who, Who and who alone holds the title of Christ? Caesar. Caesar holds the title of Christ. He says, you you are the the Christ, Christ. the son of the living God. Living God. Now, what are they standing, presumably, in the shadow of? A huge temple built in honor of the son of of a dead dead God. God. Do you think Peter knows what he's saying? Whoa. You are the son. You are the Christ. You are the Caesar. You are the king. The son of the living God, not this dead God. And then what's Peter's response, or what's Jesus' response? 
flesh has not revealed this to you, but our heavenly Father. Yeah, and then um, don't tell anybody. Before that, it's really significant based on where that temple was built. Uh, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. So I say to you, are rock. You, you are, are rock. rock. What is the old temple to the son of a dead god built into? Rock. A rock. He says, now you're the rock. And on you, I'm going to build my temple or my ecclesia or my church because oh. of this juxtaposition. I think this juxtaposition is so powerful. It's so powerful. And you're like, oh, that's why he went all the way out of his way to go to that spot. Right. To evoke that imagery, to do this. And then what does he do? He gives him the keys to the kingdom. Well, you're blowing over something. What am I blowing says, over? The gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. Mm, this is true. Do you know what, is it, what else is there? Oh, the pit. Tell me about the pit. Yeah, so, no, I don't know much about it. So. So, so when you were offering human sacrifice, there was a gigantic pit that you had to enter through a gate. and th- Really? Yeah, and Ooh. throw children into it. Oh, my. To appease this ag- agrarian god. Ooh. So there's a lot of imagery so, so, going so on the, here. So the gates of hell, like basically Ooh. the gates of hell are right there. Holy cow. And they're not going to prevail. They're which not prevail. Like, like <sighs> this is the thing. Is what, when, when was the last time a gate prevailed upon you? I got hit in the head by a door the other day. Well, have you ever tried to open Prevail. your ho- have you tried to open your house without, without having, a key? Without a key? Ooh, yes, I have many times. <laughs> and there's a lot of keys. Yeah, and and how horrible oh, is it? It sucks. It, you're like, oh man, like, yeah. do I kick it in? Does yeah, the gate yeah, yeah. like do I do I climb over? Oh, what do I do? The, the the only way a gate prevails is if you can't get through it. Yeah. But th- here he says, I'm going to give you the keys, wow. and the gates will not prevail because guess what? You have the keys to unlock hell. Wow. And to let souls out of this place of death. Oh my gosh. That's intense. Isn't that intense? <laughs> okay. But yes. Here's the, the other. Well, <laughs> well yes. It, I mean, yes. I mean, no, no, yeah, no. Yeah, kind of. It is. It is. But here's, I, I guess let's just take it backwards. Why not? Huh? We'll end with back the Psalm. Back it up. Back it up. The Psalm is my favorite part. Okay. So let's end there. So let's just go backwards. What's strange? <laughs> okay. Uh, what's strange? about what Jesus just said. I mean, if you know the Old Testament reference, if you know Isaiah 22, if you know the story of how the kingdom worked, you know, Shebna was a big, important, profound guy. So was Eliakim. He was already very high up in the kingdom. He was important. I'm sure he was well-dressed. I'm sure he was well-spoken. These are powerful people. Right. They're not wandering, kind of boneheaded fishermen. Right. Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my temple, my church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against on you. The last person on earth anybody would suspect. Yeah. Right? And so that's, now take it this with a grain of salt. Take it for what you will. I'm looking at Romans, right? Again, working backwards. Paul wrote Romans. What do we know about Paul? Paul was probably, he was the most learned, most articulate, the, the best teacher that Israel maybe had ever known. He studied under Gamaliel, who was the most famous, you know, well Respect. I mean, Paul was everything. Paul could have taught, had a yeshiva or a temple anywhere he wanted to. He was a Jew of Jews, right? He was learned of all the learned ones. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. He's the real deal. Absolutely. He's like the opposite of Paul. And I wonder what it would have been like to be, to be Paul, looking at this new church, that Jesus threw him on the ground to wake him up and slap him in the face to say, you need to follow me. He's like, okay, Lord, I will humble myself. I will humble myself to the extent that I'm going to submit myself and all of my learning and all of my scriptural understanding and everything else that I have to that guy. 
Right. That boneheaded fisherman who cut off a guy's ear and got called Satan by you once. Yeah. Who, I'm going to submit myself to you. Who's impetuous. And then he writes this, Romans 11. I don't know if it's on his mind or not. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments and how unsearchable are his ways. For who has known the mind of God? Who has been his counselor? Who has given the Lord anything that he may be repaid? For from him, through him, and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. It's one of those readings that doesn't really fit anywhere in the readings. Right. Unless you're somebody like Paul who wrote these words, who's looking at how salvation history has actually played itself out and saying to yourself, I don't understand what God is doing here. Right. But through this boneheaded fisherman, the world is actually being changed. Yeah. Because God is working through that guy. I can think of all the ways I could have done a better job than him, but that's not what God chose. He chose me to go to the Gentiles, to the, all the non-Jews, the people who would appreciate least what I have to say. <laughs> and he chose that guy. To go to the Jews who would appreciate most of what I had what to say. What I had to say. Absolutely. And how unsearchable are God's ways. Because, and, and how perfect it is. And how perfect it is. And Paul, I don't know, I, I, and I'm putting words in Paul's mouth, but I'm just hearing Paul reflect. Why does the church in her wisdom put that passage right here in the midst of these readings? And, and it's, it's like, what do, you, what do you want from a leader? I mean, like when you're really thinking about it, I mean, most of the people in culture are going to be continuation oriented. Okay. They're going to say, hey, you know what? I really kind of want all the good things that we have going to, to like continue and to yeah. be stable. Yes. People uh, in a general way long for stability. Yes. There's a few select group of us who would like be like, mix it up, man. Let the, <laughs> let the chemistry happen. And even if it is explosive. Only the half of us on that side of the room. Exactly. The <laughs> half of us who have a collar on today. Yeah, yeah. Well, a Roman collar. <laughs> but this is the thing is that, that, that um, so w- when he says these things that like, I'm going to make Peter the rock. Because cause I've, I've heard a rumor that Simon actually meant waffling. Have you ever heard that before? I haven't, but it's possible. I, I don't. I don't know off the top of my head what Simon means. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and like th- that's that the sounds th- like a stretch, uh, but maybe. Yeah, oh. yeah. But basically, what a lousy name to give your kid. <laughs> hey, waffle. Hey, waffler. Come here, dude. I think I'm just gonna. I think I'm gonna. I'm gonna have you name a kid waffle. <laughs> I'm happy you shifted. I was like trying to figure you out. You can how, name a how, fish that. Ooh, I could name a. <laughs> except for that makes me like hungry. You could have fish waffles. Yeah, it's like fish tacos. Could be Father Peter's fish waffles. That could be a hit. We could sell them in Drogos. Hey, dude, that's that's horrible. But like, yeah, he's basically taking somebody who's such a waffling, fickle, impetuous guy and trying to turn him into the rock. Yeah. How inscrutable are the ways of God? Because for his own salvation, but for the salvation of the church to say, hey, look, God is the one who does all this stuff. It is not by human strength, yes. it's by human power that these things are accomplished or done. Yes. It's not because Peter's so great. It's because God is so great. To him be glory forever. Amen. Yeah. Now, I think the psalm is the glue that holds all this together. Dude. At least in a sort of spiritual sense. Like, or like okay, m- so mortar? What? Mortar? Oh, the mortar. Uh, I, yes. figured, I figured I'd launch that phrase over to you. Oh, mortar. Not very good. See, that was good. That was better than your uh, Hezekiah hesitation one. Hesitation. All right. So I'm reading this, right? Lord, your love is eternal. Do not forsake the word of your hands, the work of your hands. I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. (laughs) For I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with all my heart. Now, I went and did some digging, and I found some other translations of this. Okay. So this first line, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with all of my heart. This is what I want to draw into. 
There's another translation that says, so, so um, where it says, I will give thanks to you. Some translations say, I will praise you, O God, with all my heart. Yeah. The word there in Greek is exomologesomai. That's a, That's a mouthful. That is a long, that must be a compound word. It, it's very much, it's like a, a derivative of like four different words. Exomologesomai. Exomologesomai. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like some sort of fancy dish. It's not. No, a fish waffle. It's a fish waffle. <laughs> I'll take the exomologesomai, please, with extra goldfish. But do you know one of the translations for that? So aside from I will give thanks to you, I will praise you, it's I will confess you. Oh Lord, with mm. all of my heart. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh man, that blows everything wide open. Oh, yes, Because it does. why does Peter get the dang keys? I mean, again, even if you're one of the other apostles, and we know that they're boneheads too at times, and they're probably like, why does he get it? Well, why does he get it? It's because he was the only one with the guts to stand up and confess, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. No one has said that yet. And now here's the psalm, which one of the translation possibilities is, I will confess you, O Lord, with all my heart. Now, the other thing about Peter. And it keeps going in. Oh, yeah, yeah, it You've does. heard me, and I will, I will sing your praise. I will yes. worship at your holy temple. Like, yeah. I will worship at your holy temple, confessing your name, the Son of God, in the midst of the, in the face of all. Which is exactly what he's doing there in Caesarea Philippi. It's yeah. an icon of all of that. And the one thing we do know about Peter, whatever he does, he does with all of his heart. <laughs> You know, even if it's denying right. or cutting yeah. ears off, he he does it with his heart. And I think to some degree, I have to imagine God has just a, an affection for that. Peter just pours himself into everything, right? good or bad. Right. He just dumps himself into it. And uh, the uh, this idea, I will, I will confess you with my heart. This is the other point that I think is really significant. We hear the word heart, and I think we're, we're framed, our, our language and our associations I, I'm, I, a professor of mine said, I think we're, we're formed by sappy British poetry. And so we don't understand what the heart means and the Hallmark Channel. They're kind of funny because if you've ever watched a Hallmark Channel Christmas movie, I don't know if you have or not, they're all exactly the same. Oh, really? Yeah. And I, I saw some headline. It was like Hallmark Channel <laughs> releasing 40 new movies this holiday season. <laughs> no. It's just like a factory. They're just pumping them out. They're just pumping out. I mean, because yeah. Hallmark movies have a particular hallmark to them they oh very good uh, uh, but the idea is they're sappy emotional shows movies right they usually sappy involve emotions. some sort of really traumatic event yeah well not always maybe the, not the holiday ones not the holiday ones those are the only ones i'm familiar with anyway but we have the wrong understanding of heart that, that's the point you know when we say you know we think of emotions right we think of I don't know, sympathy, who knows the things that we think of. But that's not the biblical meaning of the right. word heart. The word heart, the word in Hebrew is levav, right? L-E-V-A-V, levav. And um, do you actually, here's a fun fact, just to throw everything on its head. Do you know what book of the Bible has the term heart more than any other book? Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy does. The one that we all associate with like dry, sterile law and rules and law code actually has the word heart more than anything else because... It, it's, it doesn't mean what we think it means. And I, the best definition that I've ever seen in my life for what heart means in the biblical sense actually comes from the catechism. And uh, I don't know if we've talked about this. One of my favorite aspects of the catechism, the catechism was a book. I love the catechism so profoundly. I use it almost daily for something or another. But most of it was a book put together by committees and really learned committees of theologians and priests and bishops and cardinals who really put a lot of thought and work into this. They were all put together that way except for the fourth pillar. Which was written by one guy. One guy, Father Carboni, 
in a basement on a typewriter in Beirut, Lebanon during a war with bombs going on all around him. No, really? I mean, it, the narrative is awesome. And he put out on that little typewriter in that basement room in Beirut one of the best pieces of spiritual writing I think that's ever been produced. It's, it's phenomenal. It's a whole other level of the rest of the catechism. It's beautiful. But his definition of the biblical understanding of heart, which is what this psalm is pulling out, which I think is the glue of everything that we've been reading today, is really great. And it says this. He says, this is paragraph 2563 in the catechism. The heart is the dwelling place where I am. It's where I live. According to the biblical expression, the Semitic expression, the heart is the place to which I withdraw. It is our hidden center. Beyond the grasp of our, human, of our reason and of others, only the Spirit of God can fathom the human heart and truly know it. The heart is the place of decision. Deeper than our psychic drives, it is the place of truth. It is where we choose life or death. It is the place of encounter. Because as image of God, we live in relation. It is the place of the covenant. Which is very different than, oh, it's our emotions, right? It's our will. It's where we decide. It's where we meet with God in our internal temple face to face and choose life or death. That's what Peter's doing in his confession in Matthew 16. I don't even know if he knows the weight of what he's just done. But he has confessed with his heart. He has done what the psalm has asked. And he is, knowing what we know about Peter, I am convinced he put all of his heart into that confession in that moment. And he's going to flip-flop later on. He's going to fall on his face. But he put himself into that act of the will Mm. to declare that in a way that, guess what? Shebna apparently never did. Shebna tried to look out on the outside. He tried to say all the right things. But he never made that act of the will because he's buying a grave for himself. He doesn't have that decision. He's chosen death rather than life. Right. And why is Peter sort of the antithesis of Shebna as far as the Albaid goes? It's because he's made a confession that God, I mean, again, against every odd, against the Roman Empire, which is going to press down upon him if he says those words out loud. He says, no, I will choose life. I will confess that, which is the direct opposite of what Shebna does. He's the anti-Shebna, which is what makes him the better Albaid the more pure, the more clear icon of what God is actually mm. wanting to do in the yeah. world. Because he confesses the word of the Lord. He confesses, I will confess you, O Lord, with my heart. You know, there's there's something so special uh, about the moment when you decide to dig deepest into your heart to do true things. When you look and you say, am I going to respond or am I not? And yeah, and, and, and like, like that deep decision center mm. to where you say like, I understand what this is going to mean for my life, and yet I am going to risk it all anyway to I do, do it. it anyway. And like that, like that, those are the move; those are the movements and moments in movies that were like, oh my gosh, it takes your breath away. That's when heroes are made. That's when heroes are made. And so what Peter's confession in this location, in this way, is is like. This expression of this heart of confessing yes. th- that is like, is like it takes everything it like in the face of his friends, in the face of Jesus. Because if he's wrong, like everybody, I mean, like he's going to get slammed one way or another. But right. like he he could have just said nothing. But rather right. than right. this, he said he puts just, it all on the line. He puts it all on the line and says, "This is what I really believe, and from my heart, and I'm going to have enough courage to say this." Right. Yeah. Which is what we're all called to do. I mean, that's why these readings are for us as well. It's not just readings about the Pope. It's readings about what we're all supposed to do. And that's, so. Yeah, and that's where, like, that's where we are looking to help kids at the, at, in their freshman year of college, especially, 
to to be able to actually make that movement of yes. Yeah. That that fiat to follow Mary. I mean, right. Mary Mary had the same one and like Absolutely. In like a deeper capacity. So and I, she didn't go back on it like Peter did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's she also was assumed into heaven. Well. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's yeah. just so beautiful. Scott, that was like tremendous. Like I, I am so thankful for what you shared today. I, I really it don't even cool. have so much to add because, dude, you just laid me out. I was excited. Yeah. These were, these were fun. Well, you guys are fun. And thank mm-hmm. you for listening to us and enjoying uh, this podcast. If you enjoy it, then I'd encourage you to go to thomascenter.org and support the mission mm, uh, uh, that we're doing here because this is really an extension of uh, our intellectual outreach on campus in the midst of the community and the world. and. And uh, so thanks for participating. We love you guys. Pray for the new school year that um, all college students, especially freshmen, uh, would have the, uh, the holiest year of their lives. Absolutely. And we'll see you next week. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.